the thing I would say is the best time to learn about money is when you don't have any, because the kinds of mistakes you can make are really small. I mean, if you have if you have a net worth of ten million dollars, you can make eight figure mistakes. If you have no money, it's you're, you're the, the size of the mistakes you can make are you know twenty five bucks, right? Hey everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Leading the Rounds. Today we are speaking with Dr. Brent Lacey. Dr. Lacey is a gastroenterologist by training who has a passion for financial management and career coaching. He is the founder of thescopeofpractice.com. He runs a podcast, blog, and personal coaching service surrounding physician finances. We'll make sure to link his work in the show notes. Dr. Lacey is a master financial coach through Ramsey Solutions. In this role, his first 300 coaching clients paid off 1.2 million of debt in just two months. He has spent hundreds of hours coaching and teaching these principles to people in all stages of their career. He hopes to continue to help others experience the joy of achieving financial independence and success in managing their clinical practice. As always, if you like what we're doing at Leading the Rounds, give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts, connect with us on social media, and you can now support us on Patreon. Anything donated will go towards supporting us in our vision of improving medicine through quality medical leadership. We hope you enjoy this episode where we talk to Dr. Brent Lacey about personal and professional finance, from medical school to building a practice and having financial freedom. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Leading the Round. Today, we are very privileged to have Dr. Brent Lacey on the show, who is the founder of thescopeofpractice.com. Before we get started and jump into it, Peter, how are you doing this morning? I know you've had a busy morning already, and it's only 7 o'clock. Yeah, I've, I've been up in the lab since about 5.15 this morning. Um, you know, we got a big experiment, but always time to sit down with some great people to learn a little bit more about medical leadership, especially finance, because it's something that people struggle with all the time. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Dr. Lacey, how are you doing this morning? Well, doing okay. Um, got just a little bit of pharyngitis this morning, but I was like, okay, if they're getting up, I'm doing this. We're going to make this happen. <laughs> Well, we really appreciate it. I know that's not fun at all. Um, knock on wood, I feel like I haven't been sick as much at all this past year because everybody's wearing masks. So I don't really appreciate how nice it is to be healthy, but I remember not fun to be sick. Definitely not fun to have a sore throat like that. We wanted to start off the conversation today with you giving us a little bit of background about how you got started into finance and learning about finance and how you became an advisor for physicians? Well, as far as the finance training, I actually got started when I was a kid. My my parents were really um, instrumental in teaching me personal finance, and thank goodness I had the sense to listen. Um, and I, you know, I know a lot, not everybody had that, and so it was it was incredibly formative for me uh, to you know go through my teenage years, especially basically being responsible for my own my own finances. It was kind of interesting, so. When I was about 15, uh, my parents came up with this idea. They, they called it the Lacey Financial Plan. 
And they basically said, okay, here's what we're going to do for you, for me and my brother, and my sister. They said, we're going to increase everyone's allowances uh, pretty significantly. Uh, and you're never allowed to ask for money from us ever again. I was like, wait, how's that going to work? And so they had a whole, it was a whole formal thing we had written down. So, um, you know, like we we're going to buy our own car. If we wanted a car, if we wanted gas, we're going to put gas in it. Uh, if we wanted to buy our own, if we wanted clothes, new clothes, we're going to buy our own clothes. You wanted lunch from school. You're going to buy your own lunch. They said room and board is free. Like, thanks mom and dad. That's awesome. Uh, you know, so if you want to, if you want to make your own lunch and take it with you, that's fine. But I tell you what, that really changed, that changed my attitude towards money. All of a sudden I started paying attention to everything. Uh, and before that, I just wasn't paying attention to anything. And I think that was hugely valuable. And then when I got to college, I read about, I don't know, 50 books on personal finance, basically a book a month for four years, um, which was incredibly valuable. And then, uh, you know, I just sort of took it for granted that that was that that was just a natural, normal thing, because that's what I grew up with. And then, you know, going into med school and residency and, and beyond, I realized, no, it's not. I mean, no one gets trained for this stuff. So if you didn't have a personal finance class or, or pay attention to that stuff, you just you just don't know. And I felt like that was a, a major gap that uh, the medical school system is just missing. And then as I started to think about, well, what else are we missing? You know, it's like, well, people are coming out of out of uh, medical school and out of residency and fellowship excellent physicians and they're not very good at business we're, we're business leaders and business owners on day one uh after training and we're never trained for business and that's half of what we do like well that that's bad that needs to be fixed and so i decided that was something that <clears throat> i could do something about so i started writing a blog and uh that launched a podcast and that's spawning online courses and a digital summit and all kinds of great stuff so there's a huge need for this stuff out there and so if the universities want to listen to this and say you know we're going to take that over that, that's fine <laughs> but until they do uh, i'm here fighting the good fight having a strong interest in finance going into medical school did you always see yourself kind of doing something along the finance line and helping people the way that you are helping them now no, I mean, med school, I was just trying to survive, basically. Like, okay, uh, yeah, I'm trying to pass embryology. I'm trying to pass all my <laughs> clinical rotations. So, no, I didn't really think about it. I was just like, okay, I'm going to, I want to, you know, be, be smart about my money. I want to be, you know, a good steward. I want to, you know, take care of my wife. Uh, I want to plan for my future. Uh, but I wasn't thinking about much beyond that. Uh, you know, the way I got started with, uh, you know, the scope of practice was actually I taught uh, Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University class at my church. 12 or 13 times and started getting asked to do it at my hospital. And, you know, the, the, you know, like the OR nurses asked me to do a talk on setting up a retirement plan. And then the med students and the residents asked me to do a talk for them. And then started realizing, Oh my goodness, there's a huge need out there. It's bigger than I thought. Uh, and so um, just started putting some stuff together and it started picking up traction. I was like, okay, there's something here. There's, there's something that people need to know. You mentioned you read like 50 books a year on finance during undergrad. I had been advised in the past to read one book a year on finance. So it sounds like I need to definitely step up my game. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, one book a year is better than no books a year. So uh, yeah, the, the more you read, the better you do. One of my favorite quotes uh, is attributed to John Wooden, the legendary UCLA basketball coach. He said, you'll be exactly the same person you are now as you will be five years from now, except for the people that you meet and the books that you read. So if you want to be someone different, if you want to grow, if you want to, you want to have different results, if you want to not be the same person now uh, as you will be five years from now, start reading, start meeting people, start listening to podcasts like uh, Leading the Rounds, you know, start finding learned people who actually have opinions and have 
done serious work on these subjects and learn from them. In medical school, one of the things I'm interested in finance and, and interested in learning how to manage money and, and something I want to become good at in the future. But in medical school, we don't make any money. So you can't manage money that you don't have really. And so what advice would you give to medical students about learning about this, but not only that, how to effectively manage your money and, and look at loans during medical school? Well, the thing I would say is the best time to learn about money is when you don't have any, because the kinds of mistakes you can make are really small. I mean, if you have, if you have a net worth of $10 million, you can make eight figure mistakes, right? If you have, if you have no money, it's your, your, the size of the mistakes you can make are, you know, 25 bucks. Right. Um, and so now's the perfect time to learn, but the stuff that you need to learn isn't stuff that's, that's hard. It isn't stuff that's complicated. Most people, when they get out of residency and fellowship, they start thinking like, okay, I need to start investing. I need to figure out day trading. I need to learn about stocks and bonds and, and 401ks. And all it's, it's much more fundamental than that. 80% of personal finance is behavioral choices. I mean, that is almost all of it. So it's, it's simple stuff. It's learning to spend less money than you're making. It's learning to hate debt and make it a priority to get debt out of your life. And in med school, yeah, that's hard. And so, you know, I would say a first priority when you're in med school, just don't add to the debt, right? So every dollar that you borrow is a dollar plus interest that you have to pay back eventually. So if you're, you know, going negative $20,000 a year, don't make it 25. That may be as good as you can do for your four years in med school. And that's okay. Um, but, but start paying attention to those things. And the, the biggest thing is just stop spending money. I mean, that's honestly the biggest thing. And just recognize that each financial choice that you make has impact for the future. So one of the exercises that I like to put people through is say, all right, just go through your credit card receipts from the last three months. Just print out your credit card statement and go through. And it's going to blow your mind how much money you're spending on stuff. So make a category for Amazon. That's going to be a top five for most people. Make a category for eating out. That's going to be a top five for most people. And then just see where you're spending your money. And you're going to be amazed. You're going to go through. And so, I mean, I've had people that go, went through this and they're like, okay, we were spending $1,500 a month on eating out at restaurants. I was like, well, that's why you don't have a 401k is because you're eating it. So, <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> and there's nothing evil about going out to restaurants. I mean, so, but Every dollar that you spend on one thing, it's an opportunity cost for spending somewhere else. You can't invest a dollar in your 401k if you spend it somewhere else. And if you're spending something that you want to buy and that you and your, your wife or your, your husband agree on, fine, go for it. But do it intentionally and do it with a, an eye towards the future. So don't just live for the moment. Make sure that you're, you're integrating all these financial choices into a long-term financial plan. So I have the privilege of not having to learn about this stuff. Um, as our listeners have known, I'm an MD-PhD student, so my tuition, everything is covered. But do you feel that medical students should be using their loans to kind of set themselves up for the future? Or is it more about minimizing the amount of debt that they come out with? So also, is I that even legal? Like, could I, could I invest loan money? No, you can't. That's that is that's, <laughs> I didn't think that, so. <laughs> that is highly illegal. So, um, yeah, we call that fraud. <laughs> um, but but more importantly, um, <clears throat> more importantly, that is a an incredibly risky thing. So that is essentially buying on margin, and that's more or less what you know. One of the, that's one of the biggest things that contributed to the stock market crash in 1929. Um, but what's what's more important for folks in medical school is just to 
recognize that whatever debt you're incurring is going to have to be paid back at some point. And so I think the biggest goal for most medical students is just to um, come out of med school with as little debt as possible and have a plan to attack it with a vengeance and get it out of your life. Because here's the thing that people I think don't take into account. Uh, one of the, one of the great, if you ever want to just have 20 minutes of fun, just to kind of unwind, go on to any physician, personal finance forum and just post the following sentence. Do you think I should invest or should I be paying down debt while, you know, I'm, I'm with my student loans, just toss that grenade in the room and then just watch everybody freak. It's, it's, it's a, it's a fun way to unwind for 20 minutes, but <clears throat> I think you really need to be planning to get debt out of your life. And here's the reason. Okay. It's not, it's not ma a mathematical one. Cause I hear people say, well, I could pay off my loans at 3% or I can invest in the stock market an average of seven to 8%. Fair enough. Ma mathematically, that makes a lot of sense, except that it doesn't take into account the loss of autonomy that debt always comes with. So if you're $500,000 in debt in med school, which is not like out of the realm of possibilities, the average amount of med school debt, by the way, the average, the over under is 300K. Okay. I mean, I hear that and I can't breathe. Okay. I mean, now, right now I literally can't breathe, but I mean, I hear that and I figuratively can't breathe. And I think the problem is that we get numb to that over the years, right? We go to, we're in college. A lot of us are on student loans in college. And then a lot of us are on, almost everybody's on student loans in med school. So Peter, I'm like you, I was actually in the military. So I went to med school on a Navy scholarship. Yeah. Uh, and so I was fortunate not, enough not to have student loans. Then I married my wife, who's a physician and we had her student loans. So I got to sell, <laughs> I got to join the student loan uh, debacle with everybody. So it's, everyone's in the same boat. Um, but the thing, the thing is that, you know, we go through all, all those eight years and we're going deeper into debt. Then we go into residency for three years to five years. Then we go into fellowship for three years to five years. And it's 15 years later and we've made essentially no progress on any of our loans. And by that point, debt's just a thing that we just have. It's just, it's just, it's like an extra appendage. We just don't think about it. Um, and I encourage people start thinking about it, get it out of your life. Cause here's the thing. If you're $300,000 in debt, you make different financial decisions. If you want to take a job that is in the perfect location with the best group that is close to your family and it doesn't pay quite as well or it doesn't qualify for the public service loan forgiveness program and you look at that and you go, man, that's exactly where I want to end up for the next 30 years. Unfortunately, I'm stuck taking this other job because I just feel hamstrung by all this debt that I have and I got to figure out a way to get rid of it. I mean, you're passing up on real opportunities that you wouldn't have to if you're if you're approaching your finances differently. So these things really do matter. It's not just going along to get along. You really got to make a plan because these have real impact beyond just the finances. I know you can never count on this, but what do you think about the loan deferment plans and the potential for the government to to kind of pay out student loans as student loans as being a bubble? And what do you think about that? Um, I think that politicians have been promising to eliminate student loans for a very long time, and it hasn't happened. I think relying on the government for anything is an incredibly hazardous approach. The government is fickle at best and incompetent at its normal. Um, I mean, having worked for the government for a very long time, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm out now, I can say whatever I want. <laughs> but I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I love the military. I love my time in the military. Wouldn't trade it for anything. But a giant government bureaucracy is not good at running things. And things change every four years. 
uh, or even every two years, depending on who's in Congress. So I think relying on government programs for your future is a really, really hazardous approach. Now, if you're going for public student loan forgiveness, okay, one of the approaches that I like to uh, for people to consider is let's say you have um, $150,000 in student loan debt left. Let's say that. And you're in a public service loan forgiveness job. <clears throat> one of the things that I would advise for folks is set up, I call it a PSLF side fund, but basically save up $150,000 or however much your debt's worth, save that amount, put it into, you know, put it into a, a just a, an ordinary savings account or a money market account and just have it there. And if you get, I mean, let's say I'll, I'll give you a, a concrete example from someone I know. So <clears throat> someone's in a, a job where they are, uh, they qualify for public service loan forgiveness and they, they had $150,000 or I was thinking it's $180,000 $180, saved up to pay off their loans whenever they wanted. They had five years left to go. Well, two years into that, they their their boss is sexually harassing them. Okay. And that is and that is a horrible place to be. And of course that that needs to be prosecuted. It's a it's a devastating thing. But she had $180,000 sitting in the bank. She paid off her loans and gave them her two weeks notice and it's like, I'm out. I'm gonna go do something else. I mean, that's the kind of freedom that is afforded to you when you're not thinking about loans. And so that's why I, that's the kind of thing that is a very real world example why I think it's important for us to have a plan, have an intentional goal of trying to eliminate debt as quickly as possible and keep it out of our lives forever. The other part of, I think that was a great response, first of all. And the other part of what I was asking is some of the loan deferment plans. Can you talk about what's available to, to new graduates and what do you think about deferment plans? Yeah, it's it's a good question. The deferment plans, I think, are I think are are fine to take advantage of, but um, you know, especially if you've got a program, if you qualify for a program where you're eligible for zero percent um, interest payments, that kind of thing, um, I think that's all fine. But again, every every month that you defer, if you take the approach that I'm going to defer the loan, so I don't have to pay anything on it this month. If you're doing that as a very short term thing while you're getting your act together and, you know, you're making a transition, you know, it's like, OK, I need the extra cash flow that the deferment plan offers me right now, um, you know, while I'm making the transition from med school to residency or residency to attending, you know, that's fine just to give you a, a little bit of a, you know, a cushion. But don't make that your long term strategy. Start working on, you know, getting the, the loans out of your life. It's really, really valuable. Like I said, Every dollar that you borrow, you have to pay it back eventually. So if you defer for six months, it's just extending your payment time for six months. And again, if you're using that payment time for a short-term goal, like making a transition or, you know, or, or, or saving up to, you know, have an emergency fund while your wife is pregnant and you want to make sure you got plenty of money for if something should happen, fine. That's, that's great. Um, and then save that money up during that time, you know, put it in a savings account. As soon as the deferment period ends and you don't need that money anymore, throw all of it at the debt immediately and just keep on rocking. So we uh, wanted to kind of map out personal finance from medical school to residency, to practice, to end of life. And we talked about the most important thing, and, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. But the most important thing you said for, for when you're in medical school is to minimize the amount of debt that you accrue. The second thing is when you're in residency, uh, to pay off the debt as fast as you can. And so given given that there are ways to make more money using your money, and as a resident, you're probably making an okay amount of money, do you recommend ever trying to invest that money to pay off your debt faster? Or do you recommend dividing it in a way that you are consistently paying off your debt 
at a rate that you're comfortable with? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, when you're in residency and fellowship, you're not making very much. And so I think you can think of that time as an extension of the medical school time in that um, the biggest goal is to not go deeper into debt. That's the number one goal. Uh, and so that actually has an impact on where you go to residency, right? So you could go to residency in San Diego. That's where I went to residency. It's crazy expensive to live there. That's a different scenario than Manhattan, Kansas, or, you know, or, or somewhere in Florida or somewhere in Alaska. Those are all very different choices. And so that needs to be part of your equation. So, um, so I would say keeping along the goal of not going deeper into debt is really important. As far as investing versus going, um, versus going and paying off your loans, again, the mathematics of it would suggest that you might get come out ahead uh, with investing the money long-term. That's true if everything works out perfectly. But again, it doesn't take into account the loss of autonomy and the loss, loss of flexibility that you have. And for me, that's, that's too big a price to pay. So I'll give you an example from my own life. So my wife and I, you know, we're a dual, uh, dual income family during residency and fellowship. We set our goal to pay off all of her student loans. Um, and I say hers, they're really ours, uh, but our student loans at the, by the end of our fellowship period. Okay. And so what we did is we set up our uh, lifestyle to live on my income only and save a hundred percent of hers and some of mine. So we were really aggressive. We lived in a place that was a lot less fancy than we otherwise could have. I and mean, we, we could have had an apartment that was a lot nicer than the one that we lived in, but we lived in a place that was comfortable and safe. And we banked all of her money for years. And then at the, towards the end of my fellowship, um, I was going to get moved to my first duty station in Pensacola, Florida. She had a year left to go on her fellowship because we were staggered by a year and we had a new baby. And so all of a sudden we're faced with this choice. Is she going to stay in California and basically be a single mom for a year? Cause the Navy sent me to Pensacola. I got to go. I got no choice. And there's no fellowship programs anywhere close. So either she stays and finishes her fellowship with the baby by herself. And I try to make it back whenever I can, which with being a solo practitioner in the military is not going to be very often. Uh, or she just says, you know, I think I, I'm going to take a break for a while. And her choice was to take a break from medicine for a while. She decided that she wanted to stay home with the, with the kid and uh, come with me to Florida. And that was her choice. And not everybody's going to make that choice. And that's okay. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, but if we hadn't, but with, I think the thing that was great about that situation is that we didn't have to think for two seconds about the finances of that choice. All of a sudden, the question is, we're going to lose your entire income. Is that a problem for us? The instant answer is no. We're already living on my income alone. It's not a big deal. Loans are paid off. You know, It's going to cut our savings rate back a little bit, but we don't have to cut our lifestyle because we're already used to living this way. And it was a super easy choice. And it gave her the opportunity to do exactly what she wanted to do. And the only reason we had the opportunity to do that is because we had made the choice five years earlier that we were going to get the debt out of our life as soon as possible. So that's, that's the downside of using the money to invest early, as opposed to using the money to um, pay down debt. The one exception that I do uh, offer for this is that if you have a, if you're not every residency program has this, but if you have a matching program in your 401k or 403b, I'm always a fan of taking free money. So, you know, if they'll, if they'll match 5% of your salary, go ahead and do that. I mean, there's no way to make better returns than that. And it's mathematically, it's hard for me. I consider it almost blasphemy 
to not take that. So I'm totally fine with that. So invest up to the, to the match in your 401k, everything else, get that debt out of your life. Where do you factor buying a house into this? Because I know one, one argument would be, okay, I live in a cheap apartment and spend the least money amount of money possible. And then the other argument would be, okay, let me buy a house and let me get some, some assets myself in this process as well. Okay. It's a great question. I love this question. Buying a house, owning a house is an incredibly valuable part of your long-term financial strategy. It is an incredibly challenging thing early on in your financial strategy. And so what I generally advise for people is don't buy a house while you have tremendous amounts of student loans. It's very frustrating in those early years when you're renting to say, okay, I feel like I'm throwing my money away. You know, I'm, I'm paying, you know, a thousand bucks a month, 2000 bucks a month. You know, if you're in California, 90,000 bucks a month. And um, I just can't stomach losing all this money. And yeah, that's frustrating, but you got to think about the flip side of that. Okay. When you're a homeowner, if your air conditioning unit goes out, that's 5,000 bucks right there in one shot. And that could totally happen. There's no reason it can't. Something happens where, you know, a pipe bursts and floods your house. $5,000 to repair the floors. Okay. I mean, there's, there's real cost to home ownership that people don't factor in. And when you, when you take into account just the mortgage payment versus the rent payment, that is an incomplete assessment of the financial risk. So more, and moreover, those debts just keep on coming. So you lose your job, you get disabled, you still got to pay. So the more the bank is coming for your house. Okay. And so if you're, uh, you know, if you're, if you're, renting, you've got the rent payment that you've got that you're uh, responsible for, but there's nothing else. You're not worried about if an air conditioning unit breaks, if the electricity um, needs, you know, goes out because it's an old house and the whole house has to be rewired. You don't have to think about that stuff. So my general advice is wait to buy a house until you're out of your student loans at least. So once your consumer debt's all paid off, um, you know, go ahead and start thinking about buying a house. And maybe that takes two years or three years or five years. Um, but I'll tell you what, my wife and I lived in apartments and rental houses for 11 years after residency and fellowship. Uh, no, sorry, 11 years, including residency and fellowship. And yeah, it was tremendously frustrating every, every month. I'm like, man, I wish I was building equity, man. I, was, I wish I was building equity, but then something would happen. Right. So then the, you know, the, you know, pipes flood the bathroom or, um, uh, <clears throat> you know, an air conditioning unit, like an air conditioning unit went out on our, our rental house one year and, you know, I'm like, I'm so glad I'm not having to pay for this. Right. Or, you know, we were in North Carolina when hurricane Florence hit and a bunch of trees fell down and knocked over the fence and came this close to wrecking the house. I'm like, man, I'm glad I don't have to pay for any of this. Just call my landlord. Hey, send somebody out. Right. There is real security and not having to deal with unexpected expenses. That's not stress that you need when you're early in practice. So have patience, buy the house when you're out of debt. Moving from residency to real life doctor money. We have goals like buying a house and, and you know being more stable and building our equity for the future. What are some common mistakes that people tend to make when they, maybe when they like see that first paycheck after buying a practice or um, when they have that sort of expectation of what they're going to make say as a future dermatologist or plastic surgeon? Okay. Okay. This is huge. This may be the million dollar question. Okay. So everyone that's listening, all right, pay attention. All right. Ding, ding. Peter just hit the button. Okay. So the number one mistake that I see people make is 
they graduate from residency or fellowship, they get that new attending paycheck, and all of a sudden, they say to themselves, now it's my turn. That is the most hazardous phrase that I ever hear. I hear this from folks all the time. I do one-on-one financial coaching with physicians on a regular basis, and I always hear this phrase. I feel like it should be my turn. I've been waiting for so long. All my friends are going on these vacations. I want a new car. I want a new house. I wish my kids, I could send them to private schools. When's it going to be my turn? Listen, none of those financial choices are evil. Go send your kids to private school, buy a Tesla if you want. That's fine. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But if you do them at the wrong time, they will be a curse and not a blessing. And so what I always recommend for folks, when you go from residency to fellowship, uh, or residency or fellowship to your first attending paycheck. Don't suddenly decide that, hey, I've got a lot of money now. No, you don't. You have a great income now and you're probably deeply in debt. Okay. The guy who's panhandling on the corner has more of a net worth than you because he has zero and you have <laughs> negative 300K. So, no, you're broke and you need to act like it. I really believe that. Um, and here's the thing. It's frustrating. You're like, okay, I've it's 15 years. Brent, what are you talking about? I've been waiting. I've been holding my breath for so long. Okay, but then you buy a house, you buy two new cars, you start sending your kids to private schools, you're getting ready to buy into a practice, and all of a sudden you look up and you're a million dollars in debt, and you go, what just happened? And it completely changes everything you do from that point on. So there is just no substitute for patience. So have the patience, have the discipline to live like a resident or live like a student for just a little while longer. Um, but don't change your lifestyle habits tremendously. So I think a 10% rule or a 15% rule is a pretty good rule of thumb. Every time you go up in income, increase your lifestyle by 10 or 15%. Okay. It's going to be a huge change. You're going to, you're going to be able to do a lot more than you could. Don't increase it 90%. Okay. You know, think about the future. It's, it's, there's just no substitute for having some patience and incorporating all these choices into a 30 year time horizon, as opposed to thinking about, you know, when's it going to be my turn. So once a physician has that bump in income and then starts to pay down their loans, when do you suggest starting to invest and what should some of those first investments be? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, like I said, I generally recommend people start, you start investing up to the match in your 401k right away. Um, just cause I have a hard time turning down free money. Um, and then once you're out of debt, yeah, start investing. And so <clears throat> I use a concept I call the tax efficient waterfall. And so if, if people want to check it out, I've got a post on it on my, on my blog, the scope of practice. Uh, but the basic concept is you got to pay attention as a physician, as a high income earner to the taxes. This is something that I don't think it's talked about a lot in a lot of mainstream money blogs, but it's really important for physicians and other high income earners. There is no rate of return you can get greater than big tax savings. Okay. So for example, if you're in the top tax bracket, which is currently 36%, it's probably going to go up. But let's say you're in a 36% tax bracket. If you invest into an investment vehicle that is not tax advantaged, and that money get, that growth gets taxed at ordinary income rate. It's a thirty-six percent um, <clears throat> tax hickey. Okay, if instead you invest in something that you can eventually get taxed at long-term capital gains rate, that's fifteen percent taxes right there. That is an immediate twenty percent return. Okay, by just paying attention to what's happening with the taxes, there's almost nothing you can do that will consistently beat that. 
So paying attention to the taxes becomes critically important. And so if you want to go really simple, okay, there's a few things that you can do. Um, a health savings account, which is something that a lot of people aren't really familiar with, but it is a basically think of it as an IRA for medical expenses. Um, you can you can invest money in there, and as long as you as long as you only use it for medical expenses, it comes out tax free. You can put it in tax free, it grows tax free, and you can take it out tax free. It's the only account that is triple tax advantaged. So you can max out a health savings account. So that's one vehicle that you can use. And everyone's going to need that eventually. You're going to have when you're 70, you just are. Um, the next thing you can think about is your 401k. So like I was saying, you know, need to be investing at least up to the match. Then once you've hit that, if you're not, if you're not hitting that um, 18 to 20% of your income is a pretty good rule of thumb that I use for how much you should be investing every year once you're out of debt. Um, then invest up to the max of your 401k. You can invest up to the max in uh, a Roth IRA uh, for you and for your spouse. Even if your spouse doesn't have an earned income, as long as you do, then both of you can contribute. Uh, currently, it's $6,000 a year. Um, so, so contribute to a Roth IRA. <clears throat> that will take most people a long way, especially early on. Because um, early on, you're, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're still paying off your house, you're saving up for kids college. Uh, and so you got a lot of different things that you're working on. If you have money to spend or to invest above and beyond that, the next thing I would start thinking is uh, just investing in the stock market and just a, a taxable stock market account. And if you don't sell it, it doesn't, it doesn't actually realize any taxes. So just, you know, you can, that can keep growing. So that's an option. Um, a lot of people at this point start thinking about real estate. Real estate is a really great way to grow your investment portfolio because the tax code is generally geared towards uh, being favorable to business and being favorable to real estate. And so there's a lot of great tax advantages and a lot of great ways to realize real returns from real estate. So that's a good time to start thinking about that. Um, but, but I would start with, I would start simple, max out your 401k, max out your Roth IRAs, max out a health savings account. If you still have money left over, then start thinking about uh, you know, real estate investment, uh, investing in your own business, starting a business, um, things like that. I'm glad you touched on starting your own business because the question I wanted to follow up with was, at what point can you start to think about building your own practice and making that kind of investment? Because I feel like if you're starting from scratch, which I know a lot of people don't do these days, you are probably going to have to take out loans to buy medical equipment. You're probably going to have to take, like, start to hire a bunch of people. And that's money out of your practice. So when do you start thinking about that in terms of your personal finance? Okay, Peter, you're hitting on entrepreneurship and I'm loving this. This is one of my favorite things to talk about, man. You're just, you're just, you're just hitting all my favorites here. <laughs> so, so one of the things that I would tell people to think about is think about how you can change your mindset to where you don't have to go deeply in debt to accomplish some of those things. I'm a huge proponent of private practice. I think that the more people that will go into and stay in private practice, the better our healthcare our healthcare is going to be in this country. The, the corporate uh, overlords that are gobbling up all the private practices in the country, I think are going to run the healthcare system into the ground. And if you look at statistically, hospitals and organizations run by physicians do better. They're, they're safer. They have better patient satisfaction. And by and large, they're more profitable. So we need to step up and take leadership. But um, to your point, um, when you start thinking about that, I think you start thinking about that as soon as you want to. Okay. So don't let money be the reason you can't do that. 
And what I don't mean is I don't mean go borrow a million dollars and start a practice. Okay. You can start small. Don't despise humble beginnings. You can start small. So I'll give you an example. I had an interview on my podcast recently with a psychiatrist who started her own practice while she was still in residency. I mean, think about that. That sounds insane, right? Here's what she did. Okay. So she rented a little tiny office space uh, and she didn't hire anybody, at least not at first. Okay. So she's just, she's talking to, she's talking to people. She's talking to friends. She's saying, Hey, I'm I'm starting up my own practice. I'm just going to have some office hours in the evenings. I'm just kind of just getting started on, on, uh, on this thing. And so she's getting, you know, a few clients a month. And then gradually that with word of mouth, that turns into a few clients a week. And then that turn, turns into a few clients a day. And so once she starts getting to a point where she's actually bringing in some money, she hires a person. And so she's growing organically. So every time that she gets to a point where, where the amount of her time being spent on non-revenue generating activities is too high and the revenue that she's making is high enough. She uses that to start expanding, but she's not getting fancy office equipment. She's not getting fancy chairs. She's not getting fancy furniture. She got like secondhand furniture um, at some furniture store. I mean, it's like, it was great. I was loving it. I was like, this is bootstrapping it one-on-one. This is fantastic. So you can grow slowly and organically, or, you know, if you want to be, and so some people will say, well, okay, fine. That's great for a psychiatrist, but I'm an orthopedic surgeon. Okay. Fair enough. Maybe you can do some low tenants for a year or two. There's lots and lots of ways that you can make money early on so that you can invest that money into your future later. You don't have to go a million dollars in debt to start from start from ground zero. Do something else. Go work for somebody for two years. Go do locum tenants for two years. Save up that money and then use that money to invest in yourself. You will make a different decision. I think one of the most valuable things that my parents ever did for me was make me buy my own car. I mean, almost all of my friends had their parents buy them their first car when they were in high school. And I saved up for years to buy a a Chevy Prism. It was, it was four cylinders of awesome. Um, (laughs) And I didn't buy that until after my sophomore year of college. And you know what? I treated that car very, very differently. I made, I made different choices with how I chose to drive it, how I chose to take care of it because it was my car. And I saved for that for years to buy that silly thing. So don't, be in a rush to do something. Don't feel like debt is the only way to do things. You know, <clears throat> physicians are capable of so many great things. I mean, that's if the COVID pandemic has taught me anything, it's that physicians can do freaking anything they put their mind to. I mean, I've seen some amazing business startups from residents and fellows and practicing physicians in the last year and a half. It's been just amazing to watch. So there's lots and lots of ways to skin that cat, but don't uh, make the mistake of thinking that debt's the only way to do that. I know you come from the, like the Dave Ramsey school of thought that is minimizing debt, but other schools of thought are to work towards obviously minimizing debt, but then leveraging other people's money to make economic gains, whether that's through loans or through um, you know different ways to buy, whether real estate or buy a practice. Do you think there is a place for that? Or do you think if people were just smart, smarter in minimizing debt, that they could do it more cash-based? Yeah, it's a great question. I think this is where Dave and I, our paths kind of diverge a little bit. So in order for him to have any kind of integrity with the kind of um, message that he's pushing, he's got to have a hard line in the sand of zero debt ever. Um, and so he's, he's very adamant about that. My thought about debt is that I, I tend to separate consumer debt and business debt. 
Okay. Now you got to be a little careful with this. Cause that's like saying, well, I separate a flamethrower from a blowtorch. I mean, they're, they're, they basically do the same function, but they can be used in different ways. So what you got to think about is consumer debt is I think always bad. Okay. So I take a fairly hard line on credit cards and personal loans and car payments. I mean, those are just never anything good comes out of those. Okay. So that aside business, you know, leveraging other people's money to grow your business. The, the key thing I would say is that it works if it works perfectly. So if you're going to be taking out loans to grow a business and it's not always a bad thing. And certainly our group has done that and has been very successful with it. Um, you need to make sure you're doing your homework really, really well. Uh, you need a business plan. You need a lot of, you need a lot of research. You need, you need, you know, ways that you're going to adapt when your plan doesn't work. Um, so, you know, read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. He says, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. So you make a plan and something's going to happen that derails it and you need to be prepared for that. So, um, so yeah, I'm not, I'm not averse to the idea of taking out loans in order to grow your business. But again, remember, if you're using someone else's money, um, to do something, you make different choices. So you just got to pay attention to those things. So, um, <clears throat> if you're investing in a business that you own and you're in a great location and you've got great partners and it's, you know, it's a growing community and you've done some real work and real research in this area. Yeah. I think that there's some, there's definitely a place for that, but, um, you, you just got to make sure that you're doing all the right work, all the right, you know, uh, research ahead of time to make sure that you're making as, reasonable a calculated risk as you can you mentioned earlier about a health savings account and how that could be wildly beneficial in the case of something happening to your health um, the other way that we typically protect our finances against unexpected health outcomes are things like life insurance and health insurance i want to ask a little bit about your opinion on where the role of insurance comes in in protecting and growing your personal finance yeah, insurance is key, and there's a lot of there's a lot of places where insurance is necessary, and a lot of places where it's really not. So I'll give you a few things that every physician needs. So everybody needs term life insurance, okay? Not whole life insurance, okay? I don't know if you guys have ever. I don't know if this happens to you guys, but when I was in residency, I don't think it was Northwestern Mutual. I think it was someone else, but some life insurance company came to give a free dinner and a quote unquote fun. Financial presentation. And I'm like, yeah, free steak. Awesome. Sounds great. And then I realized it was a presentation for whole life insurance. So rookie move. <laughs> um, so, so term life insurance. And so if anybody ever comes up to you and says, you know, life insurance question is, is there a cash balance or a, is there a cash value, um, you know, component to it? Is there an investing component to it? If it is, the answer is no. So level term life insurance, everybody needs that. Um, health insurance, everybody needs that. Most people are going to get that through their work. Um, just get the best health insurance that you can reasonably afford. Um, everybody needs either homeowner's insurance if you own a home or renter's insurance if you own or if you uh, rent. And that is that is to protect, you know, your your home and your goods in the case of something catastrophic. Um, everybody needs long term disability insurance. So this is a big one. Statistically, physicians are especially young folks are much more likely to become disabled than they are to die. And so um, don't miss out on getting long-term disability insurance, short-term disability insurance, three months, six months, that kind of thing. The premiums are kind of high. And I tend to say, just cover that with your emergency fund, um, any short-term risks like that, but long-term disability insurance, very, very important buy. Um, 
let's see, car insurance. Everybody needs car insurance. That's required by laws in most states. Uh, but those are, I think, the really big ones. But the, the key thing to understand about insurance, we use insurance to cover risks that we can't stomach covering ourselves. So something, so we can insure against small things. So like a transmission blowing. Okay, well, you don't need car, you don't need a, a rider to do minor car repairs. Just have $15,000 sitting in a savings account that you can pull from, you know, if something like that happens. Um, you know, so we insure ourselves against small financial risks. We use, we pay for insurance companies to take on large catastrophic, you know, life altering kinds of risks. So major disability, home fire, car accident, where it's $500,000 worth of damage and hospital bills, that kind of thing. So insurance, uh, oh, malpractice insurance. I knew there was one I was missing. Malpractice insurance is another big one, of course. So make sure that you're, you are protecting your assets from giant catastrophic, you know, financial, financially destructive uh, risks and anything that's small, you can cover yourself. I think that was a great answer. And I think today was very educational and very fun for me. Uh, I think this is a great conversation. One of the questions we always end with is you mentioned books earlier and reading about finance. Um, I want to ask you about books you suggest and then resources for people to check out if they want to learn more about finance. Obviously, your website, your podcast, thescopeofpractice.com and the Scope of Practice podcast. What other books and resources should people check out? So I love this uh, because I, I love reading, as you as you can tell. But um, there's any number of great books. Uh, I actually put together a reading list for folks that are my favorite books. Um, if people want to just let your, your audience can have that, you can download that for free. It's the scope of slash reading list. And people can download that for free. It's got my top 35 books on uh, leadership, business management, investing, and personal finance. Um, so that's the scope of slash reading list. But some of the top ones out of there, um, the, the millionaire next door needs to be something that everybody reads. I think uh, the Bogleheads Guide to Investing, Boglehead, B-O-G-L-E, head, Boglehead, Boglehead's Guide to Investing uh, is a fantastic beginner investing book. Um, Everyday Millionaires, I think, is a, a fantastic uh, book that people should read. Um, those three, I think, would be really a great start for people. Um, you know, it's again, it's 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 more about the fundamental principles of behavioral choices than it is about investing. But you know, you've got some intermediate and some advanced books in there. But um, you know, if you want to check out that reading list, that's great. But definitely, Millionaire Next Door, Everyday Millionaires, and the Bogleheads Guide to Investing is a great start. And then, yeah, if people want to check out uh, the blog, the podcast, they can access it all at thescopeofpractice.com. And if people want to, um, you know, want to get a little bit more hands-on with it, uh, on November 15th to 17th, I'm hosting a, an online summit called Marriage and Money MD. We're going to have 21 physicians and physician spouses speaking about topics related to marriage, how to build a stronger marriage, and how to build a plan to uh, grow your wealth in a responsible uh, way. And it's going to be fantastic. It's free to attend. So anybody can sign up for free at uh, marriageandmoneymd.com. So Definitely would love to see people there. So that's marriageandmoneymd.com. You can sign up for free. Awesome. Thank, Thank you, you so much for coming on and speaking with us today and for giving us those resources. That definitely sounds like something I would be interested in. So I will definitely put that on my calendar. Caleb's a little closer to getting married than I am, but I still <laughs> might attend. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me, guys. This was a ton of fun for me. I appreciate it. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading the Rounds. We hope you learned something new or got a thought you can reflect on to further your own leadership development. If you like our content, please subscribe and follow. We work to put out a new episode every other week. You can also connect with us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Leading the Rounds or email us at leadingtherounds at gmail.com. See you next time on Leading the Rounds.